We're starting now with number 364. Leo made a practice of taking photograph after photograph of the master. He would hang them on the walls of his bedroom. All the available space was taken up with them. One day he asked the master to pose for yet another photograph. This time the master said, Why do you keep on taking pictures of this mortal frame? Get to know me in meditation. You will know me much better then. If you keep concentrating so much on this body, you will never get to know me as I really am. Um, Swamiji commented, you know, most people think that Swamiji was lucky because he knew Master in the body and when Master was incarnated and people would think, oh, if only I could have been there with him. And I remember Swamiji saying, to us, you don't really have the masters to look at this time, do you? <laughs> You're staring at the the school set. I don't know what shows on the film, but the whole altar's covered because we're having our school play in here. Anyway, usually I see you all staring happily at master's picture, so you'll just have to entertain yourselves as best you can. Um, anyway, people usually think that Master uh, Swamiji was fortunate because he got to be with master when he was in the body. And, at one point, Swami said something to us which was a little surprising. He said, in some ways, you have it easier than I did. He said, because it's, it's, it's easy for you to imagine Master as an infinite force. And you, you, we don't have anything in our minds that limits him to any personality because we just experience him as we experience him. Swamiji said for himself, he said it was often extremely confusing because he was aware of Master as this infinite spirit. He was aware that Master lived as much inside of him as he lived anywhere. He knew that Master's consciousness was in all the disciples. And yet, as Swami said, he was in the next room dictating letters and having dinner and making jokes and then going out for a drive. And so he said the contradiction sometimes, especially... uh, Swami was only with him for a few years. There was no context for Swami when he came to Master, except his own, of course, past life memory and intuition and all that, which, of course, was enormous. But there was no um, culture of self-realization or culture of Indian gurus. And he was raised in a completely Western intellectual way. He wasn't a child who'd been taken to Hindu temples. And, I, I mean, in our church, even though it's not at all the... American custom to touch the feet of someone um, who's served you spiritually or who, who, who you admire. The Indian people who come to our church, some of them follow that habit, and they especially want to train their children in it. So, uh, you know, sometimes the child gets pushed forward in these pronouns, and the child gets pushed forward and is taught to show his respect. And, you know, the children are just, they don't have any idea what's happening. But, of course, if you grow up with that, then you have this whole... Uh, orientation. But Swami had none of that. He just walked in as a Westerner with a very Western attitude and intuitively understood everything. But also, as he said himself, sometimes, especially in the first months, he said his mind, he would literally become dizzy because the ideas would be making him so uh, just changed. He Sometimes he would just have to sit down and gather his wits about him. But he said he, he could feel master as he was, and then at the same time he was always having to relate to him as a personality. And there's a couple of stories last week when Swami talked about sitting at Master's feet and feeling 
so much love and gratitude and Master tried to say to him, just a bulge on the ocean. And it wasn't that Swami ever doubted that, but he said his physical presence and his um, extremely engaged way of being in the world, because Master also wasn't, he wasn't like Ramana Maharshi or other of the sadhus that you sometimes know. Ramana Maharshi just was extremely aloof most of the time. He, he undoubtedly had to be very joyful and very dynamic and very helpful to his disciples or else no one would have followed him. But his, his, his being was very aloof, where, and he was often in long periods of silence, where Master simply wasn't. And, and it, it bent his mind, as Swami put it. So Leo, who was a fellow disciple, Leo Cox is the man referred to. Leo has recently published a, a book about his time with Master. I don't know where it is, but I saw it advertised somewhere. Um, and Swamiji said he just, you know, he was just constantly, said literally, the walls were papered with different photographs of Master. And on one hand, you would um, see that as an act of devotion, and one would love to have that stack of pictures, <laughs> because we don't see enough pictures to have papered the walls of anybody's room. Everything that he had, I believe he left SRF if he's still living. I don't know if he's still living. Um, but Master then scolded him because Leo's mind was too outward. It wasn't, you know, you could imagine that someone else could be taking those photographs with a different orientation and Master would have welcomed it for the sake of posterity, for having all those pictures and all those moods represented or what it might have been. But he knew for Leo, his consciousness was too outward. Swami did not have many or any pictures of Master up, not very many. I remember once he was traveling, and uh, one, of, one of us who was traveling with him noticed that he didn't have a picture of Master in his room, so she gave him the picture she had, and he just said, I have him in my heart, I don't need a picture. So for Swamiji to freeze Master into that image, um, I mean, he, he, it wasn't that he didn't appreciate pictures of Master. I remember he, he, had, he had feelings about it. Remember he wrote about the last smile, and he talks about how Master knew that just minutes from when that photo was taken, he would be out of that body. And yet as Swami just describes the look in his eye and his um, complete non-attachment to the fact that his body was about to exit, so it wasn't that Master was uh, unaware of the value of a photograph or that Swami was unaware of it. But for Swamiji to bring him back to that body doesn't bring him any closer. Because he, he looked into those eyes. He doesn't have to have a photograph to be able to see it. I know um, when Swami first saw the colored version of The Last Smile that SRF published, at first he liked it, and so we, we, I think we gave him a framed picture of it. But after a couple of days, he, he, asked us to take it, he asked us to take it back. He said, in coloring it, they changed the vibration of the eyes. And he said, it doesn't seem like him anymore. There have been many different colorized versions. But Swami was not inherently enthusiastic about coloring the pictures of the masters when we have actual photographs. I always say to people, if you had a photograph of Jesus, would you use a painting? You know, you would have a photograph. 
So we have actual photographs of Sri Yukteswar, of Lahiri, and of Master. We don't of Babaji and Jesus. But of those three, we do. But now people have made paintings, and now people have made colorized versions of those, and people think the altar looks prettier if they're all color. But once you've shifted from the photograph, and once you've taken a colorized version, it may have changed the vibration because the eyes are are very subtle. Um, What I've seen people, you know, I, I walked around once in one of the ashrams, one of our ashrams in India, and there wasn't a single actual photograph. Every, there were several altars, and every altar was, the, was either paintings or colorized pictures, and mostly paintings. And I, I pointed out to people that we have photographs of our masters, and, we, and no one had really thought about it. It was just putting up what looked pretty. Um, what I've seen people start to do is they've, they've started coloring around the face. Like they'll color the robe orange, they may color the hair a little brighter, they may bring in color to the background. But if you leave the face untouched, then you still have the actual presence of the master and you still get the uh, artistic effect that people are looking for. And then some colorized versions are just... I don't, I don't know how the work is done. But, but some, are, some are better than others, is the only thing I could say. I'm taking the opportunity to say this out loud because to say it's a pet. The word pet peeve is so funny to me because do you keep your peeve in a little cage? Do you feed it at night? You know, do you exercise it? Does it have a little wheel? I think that's what they're trying to say because you nurture it and you, you, you cuddle it and you, you give it a name and you want to take it out and exercise it. So it may be a pet peeve of mine <laughs> that uh, we're losing the photographs. I'm also in a, an odd position because when we were uh, struggling against SRF and I was chronicling on the internet the many ways in which they have deviated from Master's intentions, one of the things I criticized them for was replacing the photographs with paintings. So I must say when I went around my own ashram and saw the photographs being replaced with paintings, it, uh, it, it was a little awkward for me. So that's also why I say it. But there's real reason. You know, Swamiji responded very specifically. And he would know, because none of us have ever actually looked into Master's living eyes unless one has had a vision, which, of course, many people have. Okay, number 365. Any comments or questions on any of that before I go on? Well, a a painting generally doesn't look like the person being painted, and... But sometimes the artist enhances. So it also depends on the consciousness of the artist. You do get a combination of the artist consciousness and the uh, original subject. Um, I'm looking back there for Babaji's picture and all I see is the blank wall. But um, Babaji's picture is a drawing that Master sat next to his younger brother Sananda, who was an artist. We hear this story because Hare Krishna, who was... Sananda's son was 15 and Hare Krishna sat on one side of Sananda and Master sat on the other. So Hare Krishna has passed away now but we knew him for 15 years. He told us all about this and Master guided his father in how to paint the picture. Swamiji said later that Master himself drew the eyes. Now I'd never heard I never heard Hare Krishna say that but Swamiji said oh Master did the eyes. 
but of course the eyes are the most important. The rest of it is just a face. Um, and let's see, that there was something else that was part of that. So also with Lahiri Mahashaya, the photograph of Lahiri Mahashaya, because it's very old and it was not under perfect conditions, is fuzzy. You know, it's not perfectly clear. And Sananda did a painting from that photo. And the painting he did is more clear. So SRF and almost everyone substituted Sananda's painting. Now Sananda was a disciple and he was in tune, so it's not, there's nothing wrong with the painting, but it's not the photograph. But it, it was, it's so ubiquitous that when I was in Los Angeles once and we were, I looked at something that they had and it was, I believe it was the painting and not the photograph, and I started telling them about the photograph versus the painting. We went to our blue edition of Autobiography of a Yogi, and I looked up the photograph of Lahiri Mashaya, and it was the painting. Somebody on our staff, when we were republishing that book, thought it was a clearer version of the photograph and just put it in there. So I actually thought briefly I was losing my mind. Because I, you know, there's this like, Master's face is longer in the photograph, it's rounder in the painting. I mean, there are certain ways to tell, but then, because see here in Autobiography of Yogi, I said, see, there's the photograph. No, it wasn't the photograph. Because this was also something that I myself went way out on a limb, because at some point SRF just substituted the painting, but left the text the same about there was only one photograph of Lahiri Mahashaya, and a copy of that precious photograph is enclosed in this book on page so-and-so. And you open to page so-and-so and it's Sananda's painting. Subsequent editions of the autobiography now also have the photograph. They have both of them. And again, I'm saying all these things because these are things that need to be known. If you weren't as um, engaged in the minutiae as some of us were at one point, you just kind of lose track. And it matters because... That's a miraculous photograph of Lahiri Mahashaya. The photographer kept getting a blank spot on his film until Lahiri gave him permission to take that picture. And Sananda's painting is very nice because he was a very good artist, but it isn't the actual photograph of Lahiri. So even though it's fuzzy, it's, um, to me at least, these things matter. Did you have something to say on that? Why don't you pick up the, pick up the microphone? Mm-hmm. That photograph when we went in '86. Um, Satyachar and Lahiri, who was the great grand great grandson or grandson? What would he be? Grandson. He was the grandson of Lahiri Mahashaya. He had an original copy of that photograph, and I believe it's from that copy that we then subsequently made copies. It's conceivable that other it came from other sources, but I think that was the beginning of having it. We took a good picture of that picture of Master's mother that most people have is from Forgarpar Road House and we took a good photograph of the of that picture and then used it so um, the question is when did the last smile take place it was March 7th 1952 when Master was at the banquet at the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles and it was a banquet in honor of the first, amb- the first ambassador to America from India, the first Indian person to be the ambassador from India. Because it was 1952, because India was liberated in 1948. So maybe it wasn't the first ambassador. But when you think about it, 
it was a it was a really important reality for the India to be represented by one of its own people because until that time it had been represented by England. So this was thrilling for the whole Indian community and for Master also. So the banquet was in honor of that ambassador. And um, I must have been after dinner, Master stood up to give a speech. And at the end of his speech, he, he stopped his heart and he died. So as he was standing up, or just as he stood up, or just before he stood up to give his speech, they took a photograph of him. And that people call it the last smile because shortly after that, ironically, or interestingly, the entire Biltmore Hotel in all these 70 years has been completely remodeled. And the room that was the banquet hall where that took place is now the, the lobby and the reception area. But there was a very distinctive carved fountain that was in the banquet hall that was, an edge of it was right behind Master. So you see this very distinctive design. That piece of architecture was declared some kind of a national treasure or a state treasure. So even though the Biltmore has been allowed to renovate and renovate, they haven't been allowed to touch that fountain. So that fountain remains intact and it's right in front of the reception center at the Biltmore Hotel. And because of that, you can determine exactly where Master was sitting when that photograph was taken. So hundreds, thousands of devotees over the years go into the lobby of the Biltmore Hotel, sit in front of the reception desk and meditate. <laughs> and the staff, of course, because it is Los Angeles after all, and they're used to kooky people. But you know, it's like a guest will come in and you know you'll see crowds of people sitting here like this. <laughs> it always amuses me. But it amuses me also because, of course, the Biltmore Hotel would never have respected that. That, that spot could have just been consumed. You wouldn't have had any idea where it was. He, he, how old was he, Master? Well, he, Master died in 1952. He was just 59, not quite 60. Yeah, he left his body very early. So no one would have been able to pick out that holy spot because the Biltmore Hotel would not have preserved it. But because of that fluke, I just, I think God's ways are so charming. When, uh, when Swami Kriyananda was very ill in 2009, um, at the end of May or in early June, he, he was extremely ill. That was literally just before he, he started the Naya Swami order. And it was a battle between him and Satan as to whether or not he was going to be able to live to found the order. That's how he put it later. But we, we flew from, I, I flew with him. He, his horoscope said that he would, that, that that birthday would be his last birthday, May 19th of 2009. Whatever the age he was, I don't remember the age now, but that was the one. So I decided if it was going to be his last birth, Swami wasn't announcing that he was about to die, but it was sort of, had been a brig who, the Brighu readings, that's where it came from. It said that that would be his, his passing time. So I decided if that was going to be his last birthday, I wanted to spend it with him. So I flew to India to be there for May 19th, his birthday. And he was very unwell for three or four different reasons. And on May 20th, he, um, he had a, uh, would it have been, yeah, it may have been May, I'm, I'm, I'm the exact day I can't say, but it was, because I don't know whether it was actually his birthday or the day after, but he, he blacked out. He had a moment of blackout and then was very scrambled. They never quite figured out what happened. But the next morning he, we, he had to fly to India.
Miriam, his nurse, was accustomed to the fact that whenever he had to face any major event or whenever he changed countries, which was every three or four months, um, there would always be a, a satanic attack, basically. There'd be some force would try to stop him, usually through his body. So she made the difficult decision that we would follow through with our plans. So anyway, he flew to Switzerland, to Lugano, um, for, for a holiday, and a few other people met us there. This is a, I got very complicated about the story more than I meant to. So anyway, so there we are in Lugano, Switzerland, and he's in the Hotel Dante, which is a place that he liked to stay. And he was extremely unwell. Miriam said later there were like three or four different ways he could easily have died that night. There was just, he, he was that close. I was alone with him in the evening, and he was very far away. He actually started reviewing all of the Ananda colonies and all of the major departments, who was in charge, what they were doing. And about when he was about three-quarters of the way through, I said, are you asking, Swamiji, that if you die now, will Ananda's work be able to carry on? He said, yes. That was exactly what he was doing. He was just going through it. And I said, I, I believe that we're very well-trained, sir. And if, you, if this is your moment, then you don't have to stay for our sake and you don't have to stay for the work. But in my mind, and this is the entire point of this whole story, I thought to myself, we are in a hotel room at the Dante Hotel in Lugano, Switzerland. I am the only person here. It is very unlikely that he's going to die tonight. I just couldn't see it. I just couldn't see it. Because how would we ever save that hotel room? I mean, it just nothing. <laughs> it just no part of that made any sense. And it, was, it gave me comfort. Miriam said that my fears were justified. I mean, my concern and his too was justified, but he didn't. He stayed. And then uh, uh, he, went, he stayed ill for a long time. But then he, uh, he got well in, uh, well, he, by the time we got back to Italy and back to his house, he usually lived alone, but I'll just finish because I've started. He usually lived alone, uh, but we saw that he was just, he, his, he was just too precarious. We just couldn't leave him alone. So, we kept up a 24-hour, kept, kept him company. He had a keeper, was his words, for 24 hours a day. Anand spent the nights with him and various of others of us spent the days. So he was never alone, um, which he didn't enjoy all that much, but he understood. Um, and then on the afternoon of June something, I actually wrote the date down in the introduction to a new religious order for a new age. Um, He had a, like a four o'clock or a five o'clock appointment and he took a nap and he wanted me to get him up in time for the appointment. And Swamiji often spent a long time in the day in his, his pajamas and his bathrobe because he would tend to get up early and as soon as he finished meditating, he would start writing and sometimes he would write till four in the afternoon. So he was accustomed to greeting guests in his pajamas and he had a whole series of beautiful bathrobes. It was just part of the culture of Swami. One of the pictures in the book I'm publishing about him is him sitting there in his uh, living room in this beautiful flowered kimono. I realize there's no caption, so you don't really have any clear idea of what that was, except that if you, if you saw Swami often, you realize that often late in the day, he hadn't yet really started his day because he'd been writing all day. 
Anyway, so, but he didn't want to greet these particular guests in his pajamas, so I woke him up at whatever time I wrote him, woke him, and he was so weak that I just, I had to button his shirt. I had to take care of my father somewhat like that, so I knew, you know, I knew what that was about. So I went to the closet, and I went through his closet, and I pulled out this beautiful blue silk, indigo blue silk shirt that he really liked. And I brought it in, and, you know, I just had to help him change out of whatever he was wearing, his T-shirt, and I, he couldn't button his shirt. I mean, it was just like this, just like old men, old people are. I buttoned his shirt, and I'm chattering away, just, you know. I said, Swamiji, you know, if the, if the color of Swami's was a beautiful blue, you would be more inclined to wear it, because Swami never wore orange except when it was formal, but in his ordinary life. In India, it was different, but in the West, he never wore it. So I said, if, if the color of the Swami order was blue, then you would wear it more often. Really seriously, he says. I said, if you change the color to blue, he said, I'm thinking of doing just that. He said, I said, oh, you know, sometimes I, I would say the stupidest things and I would get really serious answers. <laughs> that was sort of one of those moments. Oh, like I actually said something intelligent. I was just babbling. And then... I helped him into the living room. He sort of collapsed on the couch. He stretched out on the couch. I went back to make his bed, put some things away in his bedroom. I came back out. Swami is stretched out on the couch like this. He's not moving. I'm thinking, oh God, he did die on my watch. You know, it was just like, oh. And then after just a moment or so of my panic like that, he began to talk. And he started talking about how he's always felt that the Swami ordered needed to be um, revised, reformed, because it was created such a long time ago that almost all the rules for Swamis are honored in the breach because it was just for another time. Never stay longer than three days in any place. Never handle money. Just all these different things that nobody, can, nobody follows because it doesn't make any sense anymore. And then he talked about the color orange being burning up the ego, but he said, too, there's too much emphasis in renunciation on what you give up. He said, we need to make the, the, the emphasis positive about what you're going to accomplish, what you're going to realize. So he said, orange was an appropriate color for Kali Yuga when we were breaking the form. But moving into Dwapara Yuga, we should be looking to, to, to realization and therefore the color of blue. This color, of course, is a more appropriate color. And then he stood up, <laughs> just stood up, walked over to the typewriter and started writing a book about the Naya Swami order. Then he called a meeting that night and he had a meeting in the living room all about the Naya Swami order. And it was just, it was literally a miraculous, I mean, I was buttoning his shirt and then he was writing a book and it all happened in about a 15 minute period. Later, he said, while I was in the other room cleaning things up, he was like that. He said Divine Mother came to him. Came to him. Master came to him, Divine Mother. I feel like he said Divine Mother, but I don't honestly know. Whatever I wrote down, I wrote down. Um, and he said, I'll, you know, I'll die or I'll stay, whatever you want. It does, it's all the same to me. Oh, when he first, well, the first things he said to me was he was going to do the Naya Swami order. He said, 
this was what Satan was trying to stop, you know, by taking his life. He said, this was it. So now, and, but Divine Mother gave his life back to him. And it was all, you know, it was all destined that that was his time. He said himself that he really thought, he felt like he, he could easily have left his body right then. Everything was conspired toward it. But he needed to do this first. So he lived four more years. Yes, slightly less, just a few months less than four more years. His body, I mean, there was nothing to keep it going, really, absolutely nothing to keep it going. He, I mean, he, he, it, it took one per, it took two people supporting him for him to even be able to walk. As soon as he sat down and didn't have to do anything with his body, his his energy was complete. But if he had to do anything with his body, it was very very difficult. But he he stayed in it four more years. Um, um, yes. Very rather trivial. Um, you mentioned that you, during the last smile. Master was sitting. Are you sure of that? No. Okay. Not at all sure. You can look at the fish or the. Is it fish? Flowers. Yeah. It's fish. I, I keep wanting to say fish. It's a fish design behind him. Yeah, that's weird. No, Marsha, I think he was sitting because the, the actual folklore, they propped it. That's had right. another woman next to him, and the other woman was eating the dessert, and he, he had dessert in front of him. So that picture actually is a prop picture, it's not the full picture. Okay, yeah, I haven't thought about it in a long time. Okay, so he was sitting. The The comment was that Master was in fact sitting because what we call the last mile is a close-up of a bigger picture. And in the bigger picture, you can see everybody around him. But somebody decided he was more important than the woman next to him having... Um, there's a picture of him rising from his chair, though, isn't there? And the ambassador's wife is pronouncing to him. So I, that's what was confusing me in my mind. But that's, he's not looking at directly at the camera in that one. Yeah, then he was getting up, she pronounced. So that one was taken first. Okay, well that was a interesting side. Like, so then Swamiji actually died on his bed at his house in Assisi, which now is preserved as his Mahasamadhi site. They, call, they changed the name of his house to Moksha Kutir, and they keep the upstairs... And, and the, they keep the room where he breathed his last, which is far better than the hotel room at the Dante. <laughs> We're all thankful for that. And his body, of course, came to the village, which was all agreed upon ahead of time. All right. Number 365. The Lord won't answer every prayer the way you want him to. But if you pray with faith, you will find him giving you much more than you want. The double meaning of much more than you want. I just couldn't help, and I don't know if Swami left it there on purpose, if Master put it in there. When you get more than you want, you get more than you bargained for, you get more than you asked for. I mean, it has a... It, this is trying to sound like it's positive. He won't answer the prayers in the way that you want, but he'll give you much more than you want. There's a story of, of a, this uh, a man, a, a, a prosperity maven a mentor told this story about a man dies and goes to heaven and then St. Peter showing him around the whole, the whole heavenly realm and he takes him to the heavenly junkyard this is the prosperity teacher telling us this and in the heavenly junkyard you know he sees a Mercedes Benz or a big Cadillac or whatever car it was it was the most important at that time 
and the, the new newbie who's just arrived in heaven. And he, and he says to St. Peter, what is all this great stuff doing here? And Peter says, St. Peter says, well, these are all the things that we wanted to give to people on earth, but they wouldn't receive them. And so the newbie looks over and he sees this really fancy jaguar, let's call it. And he says, well, I would have loved to have had that car. And St. Peter says, well, bye, that's very interesting. That's quite a coincidence because that car was intended for you. But every time you prayed, you visualized a Volkswagen. (laughs) So, from the point of view of certain kinds of teachings about prosperity, they tell you that you have to think big and you have to visualize it exactly. Now, that's not exactly the teaching that Swami gave to us. Swamiji says, in fact, you should, you should visualize and pray for the flow of energy that you're trying to experience rather than giving it a specific form because often if you give it a specific form, you limit your potential or you blind yourself to something that's really trying to happen. So if I say I want this building or this house on that street, now people who teach these things will also give you story after story about how I picked out that house and I visualized that house and I got that house. But Swamiji always says, think of the flow of energy that you're trying to create. Think of how you will serve. Think about how there, there could be an expansion of light and then let God get fill in the details. It's more powerful that way. So also this is what Master is saying, that the Lord won't answer every prayer the way you want him to. So we pray for lots of things and lots of things that we pray for seem like a good idea, you know, allow me to conceive a child, you know, give me a loving partner, help me to be able to perform this play or write this book or, you know, sing beautifully or, you know, help my baby to recover from this illness that my baby has. I mean, you would think that these things would would come. But he says, if you pray with faith, you will find him giving you much more than you want. So let's take the positive meaning of that, which is that we don't want to limit our expectations to what our human ego can imagine when God has much more glorious plans for us. But it also means that often God sends us something that we really didn't want at all because he's taking us to a place that we didn't know enough about to be able to pray for. And and it's just the difference between my ways are not thy ways, saith the Lord. You know, just when we uh, run our lives by ego perception, then what we get is ego perception. And we, we, we really have to decide whether or not that's enough. And, and, you know, this world of extraordinary atheism, that's what people are doing all over the place. And every each side of whatever you know, worldly question we're asking, all the egos involved in it have figured out what the best solution is and they're busily and mightily trying to impose it. And that's why we can't reconcile anything because if it's just ego to ego, everybody has good reasons that make sense to them for what they're doing. And each takes the moral high ground against the other and there's absolutely no way to resolve it. When we were showing the movie about Ananda finding happiness, the first round of release, whatever year that was, well, it must have been 2012. 
because that was when we finished the movie, or 2013. Um, and we did a local showing here, and, and because I was involved in the making of that movie, I was there to answer questions afterwards. And we had a, a good house, and they were lively. And somebody asked me the question as to whether or not a community could succeed without a spiritual base, basis, because the whole movie about Ananda makes a point of the spiritual basis. And I remember answering, which is an ob obvious answer if you live at Ananda, I said, when you get a group of people together, even if they're very well-meaning, you know, they're, in, inevitably people will have different opinions about things. And you've got to have some ideal that everybody is committed to that is more important to them than their egoic preferences. And you can try to make that organic gardening or climate change or, or, or you know, sus sustainability or, or innovative economic systems. I mean, you, you can try, but very often that, that will not be more important to people than their egoic preferences in relationship to it. But, but the ideal of divine realization, not God as fundamentalism, but you can also put a community together based on, on orthodox principles that everybody agrees on that they have to adhere to, but if you have a, a, a way of relating that inherently allows people to transcend their egoic preferences, which is what self-realization and primarily the practice of meditation does, then everything else will follow inevitably from that in, in a positive way. Because without that, it's just preference against preference. So what Master's talking about in this whole whole phrases if you pray if you pray with faith and that doesn't just mean faith i know you're all powerful god and you can do this for me you can do anything you know you who gave moses the tablets on mount sinai you know you who parted the red sea you who raised our lord jesus christ after 3 days in the tomb it's not really about how big and powerful he is it's 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 a deeper kind of faith and it's the faith in, in your relationship to God. It's if you, the, the faith that you're praying for, I believe I was talking about this last week or recently at least, you have, to have the, you have to have an intimate relationship with God. And if you have that faith, oh, I know, it was my Sunday service. That was the one. Or it was, oh, oh, by their fruits you shall know them. So that was a Sunday or two ago. That's what's really being tested is whether we trust our own experience. And if, if we really know that God participates in our life in a way that is better <laughs> than the way we run it by ourselves, that's the faith that you have. And when you pray with that faith, that also um, brings with it a certain surrender, which is the surrender of the, of the commitment to my own ideas about things. And that's what Swami uh, Master's also getting to. You know, if you, he will give you much more than you want. He will give you that which you're really seeking, but you don't have the wisdom even to know it's what you want because he, he reads the heart and he knows where we're really going. And this is, um, Jesus himself is the most powerful example of this. The night before he was crucified, 
he was at, and now I've been to these places, he was at what they call the rock of agony, which is how they always like to picture it, you know, is how much Jesus suffered. So he's at the rock of agony at the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Now, I presume the, the most mundane interpretation of that was him being asking not to be crucified, which seems kind of odd. I don't know if anybody actually really interprets it that way because he himself just provoked these people who had the capacity to crucify him. He, would, he provoked them to the point where they arrested him. And then, um, you know, when he actually went to his trial, he didn't even defend himself. So it wasn't like he was really trying to wiggle out of this. He could have not done it. But he, he challenged those people continuously and came right to Jerusalem at the time when he knew that they were looking for him to arrest him. So it would be kind of insincere to say, oh, please, please don't let this happen. Like, gosh, there were a lot of ways you could have avoided it up until now, but you put yourself in harm's way. Why did you do that? What Master says in the interpretation is that Jesus came to bring a liberating message. And the people were t closing their hearts against him. And he wanted to spare them an enormous amount of karmic suffering, but they refused, not all of them, of course, some did, but many, that he had the potential to inspire, instead chose the world and pushed him away. And that was what broke his heart. Losing his body was not a big deal to him. But seeing that that the suffering of others could be eased, but they chose instead to continue to suffer. That's what broke his heart. You see, it's so much more noble. And that's why even as he was being crucified, literally, he looked at those who had done this to him, and he said, Look, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I mean, that wasn't a small prayer. That wasn't just, oh, you know, I hope you'll be okay. It was actually, he was interceding. He was interceding with the divine and saying, you know, don't punish them for this terrible thing that they've done because they've done it in complete ignorance. They just don't know. It was, it was a magnificent prayer. But at the Garden of Gethsemane, there at the Rock of Agony, he says, Lord, let this cup pass from me. But then after he says that, he says, but thy will not mine be done. And everything about that is thrilling. Because there he was. He, it was a perfectly natural thing to say. You know, this is, this is catastrophic for the people who have had the opportunity to be called to the light and have rejected it. So please, if there's a way, let's, let's not do this. Even now, let's not do this. Um, because Judas has already left. They were having supper together and Judas has already gone. And Jesus knows that Judas is betraying him and is going to bring the cohort. He knows the whole story. He knows Peter's going to deny him. He knows everything. So he's there praying. And he says, even now, does this have to happen? But after he expresses himself, he then says, but whatever you want. And so I feel that that's exactly how we should always pray. It's, it's not sincere 
it's, it's not magnetic to pretend a detachment from events that we don't have. It, it doesn't help anybody to put on a facade. For, I, I went through the cycle with Swamiji very early on where he was asking things of me that I simply wasn't capable of doing and I was too egoic and frightened to know how to learn anything. So I just kept pretending I had it really together. So he kept putting pressure on me and I kept pretending I had it together. It was just, it went on for almost two years. It was not a joke when it happened. And it wasn't a joke until afterwards. And he said, uh, you, you know, you're just, you're just trying to be a good disciple is how he put it. You know, you're trying to say yes and that you're all with it. He said, but underneath you were, I could tell you were, I, I, he was, I was getting angry because I couldn't cope at all. And so a response of anger wasn't a very intelligent one, but I was just feeling pressured and crazy. He said, but underneath I could tell. Did he say I was getting angry? I can't really recall what he actually said, but he knew that I wasn't making it. I don't recall being angry with him, but I do recall just uh, feeling pressured by him. And that would, that would have been a, a, a force of anger because it would, I would have been, why are you doing this to me? No, that was a different time. But he, then he said to me, you never fooled me. That's what he said. I said, oh dear, what a waste of time. <laughs> and I, I learned from that. What a waste of energy. He said, I prefer an honest argument, an honest argument than an insincere yes. Which, of course, I never forgot. But God prefers an honest argument than an insincere pretense at a detachment that we don't actually feel. But Jesus showed us how you can have both at the same time. Which is, this is really my point of view. If you're interested in it, I think this is the best outcome. If my opinion matters, I'm going to register it. I think that this is a really crummy deal and I'm going down for the third time and I really don't think I can cope with much more than this. I mean, you can say anything that you want to say. This is a crummy world, and if I were in charge, it wouldn't be like this. Anything that's sincere, you can say. But when you're finished, you say, but what do I know? You know, whatever you want, of course I will accept it, because also, haha, what choice do we have? <laughs> Which is, you know, this great surrender of the powerless person. <laughs> but it's better to be cooperative. And that also just keeps you humble. It, it, it allows you both to have confidence in your own perspective and it also keeps you really humble about your own perspective because it's very dangerous to become too sure of yourself on the spiritual path. Swamiji always, was always questioning, always willing, this seems right, this seems what we should do. I can't really think of an alternative to it. It, it seems like we're being forced into this position. You know, I can't find another way to go about this. But he would, he, even if he felt Master's promise, he would never just declare it like that. A friend of mine once took a very unpopular stand on something, and he said, well, I felt that God wanted me to do it. I said to him, <clears throat> you know, you may feel that God wanted you to do it. God may have even come to you in a vision and told you to do it for all I know. But what you've done is if anyone disagrees with you, they have to disagree with God, and that puts them in a very weak position. <laughs> and it, it's, it makes it hard to have a conversation with you. 
you know, he he didn't actually change his point of view because he felt that he'd been guided to do it, which, you know, I had to respect. But Swamiji rarely put us in that position. Even if he had a very strong feeling from Master that this was right, he never disempowered the people around him by just declaring that this is what Master wants. Because, you know, what could, what could any of us do with that except except just go along, which is okay on a certain level, but you never develop the capacity to think anything through. If it's just, this is the way it is, this is the way it is. And, you know, some religious traditions like that. But Swami never trained us that way. You know, naturally, I mean, and often sometimes I would have to sort of think to myself when I would see people dispute some of his decisions, I would think to myself, has it ever occurred to them where, why he made that decision? <laughs> Have they ever even considered that he wouldn't be going in such an unexpected direction unless he felt some strong inner guidance to do it? When Swami decided to edit Whispers from Eternity, it was in the public domain um, as, as part of the whole lawsuit thing. It was in the, pub, the original Whispers from Eternity from 1938 or 40-something, whatever, SRF itself issued an edited version of that after Master died. But the one that came before 1952 went into the public domain, so Ananda, Crystal Clarity, Ananda public Publishing Company decided to publish it because we, we were publishing the original AY, all these original writings. So the actual page proofs for the printer were handed to Swamiji. And they, he had seen the book earlier but he was working on something else, and I don't remember what. And he, he did his famous, yes, I saw it, but I didn't put my mind to it. <laughs> that was his explanation for, but sir, you said it was okay. Yes, I know I did say it was okay, but I didn't put my mind to it because I was working on so-and-so. So he has the page proofs in his hand. The printing date is set. The pre-orders are promised. And there's like, it has to be at the printer in like four or five days or less, maybe less than that. And he, he said, I felt Master telling me that I should edit this book. It has to be edited. It was his birthday weekend. I happened to be up there when it started, so he just sat down with the page proofs and started editing the book, and then he handed them to me, and I typed it into the computer. A lot of people were quite upset that he would dare to do that, and they, they were just you know, waves of energy. All I thought to myself is, do you think he would do it if Master hadn't told him to do it? You know, it just, he wouldn't presume. And it was, and for him, because I witnessed it, not everybody else witnessed it, it was a, he had, it might have even been like his 80th birthday or something, it was some big thing, there were 500 people there, and there were morning, noon, and night events. And in between, he would edit like this. He said it got to the point where he would dream. He, was ed- he would edit with a pencil. He said he would dream about this pencil just going across like this. He said, and all these black squiggles, which are the words in the pencil going across. <laughs> and he did it like in three days and finished it. It was, it was quite fun, really. And, it was, and so now that's the version that we all use. Yeah. Master approved the original. Yeah, the reason we have you do that, bud, is because a lot of people watch this on recording. Master approved the original, 
So Messer why, wrote the original. He wrote it himself. And he proved. He, so why would it need to be edited? There was a, a woman who was an editor at SRF who decided it needed to be edited. And the master was gone by that point, so she decided it needed to be edited. She actually rewrote the book entirely. Um, uh, because of copyright reasons, I couldn't post on the internet the master's original at that time, master's original and the edited version. So we posted, I think we could, we, we said that a, an original poem that had 112 words in it in the edited version, ten of the words were the same. That was it. That was it. Yeah, it was pretty definitive. <laughs> Do we have the original? Yes, because the SRF publishes the original now. So SRF publishes two versions: the original version and an edited version. And Ananda publishes the original edited version. The, the Whispers from Eternity, edited by his disciple Swami Kriyananda. Swami's. Uh, point of view on it was that Master's overflowing devotion just, he, he, I don't know, he did what he wanted to do. It's, I, find the, I find it more comprehensible. It's just, everybody has their own opinion on these things. But that was just an example. Kamala Devi. Mm-hmm. I just came across this excerpt from a talk that Master gave. Um, and I can't remember where or when, but um, in it he says, uh, I hope that Babaji, something like Babaji and Divine Mother are pleased with what I've done. You know, and I just, I just felt like that was such humility for such a great life. And it was a, such a good reminder for us that, uh, you know, I'm sure that's why he said it. Like, just never. Um, so. Let me, let me just, okay, let me hold, it, hold on for just a second. Um, I, I want to respond to that. I also want to finish the thought about whispers because both are important. Swamiji wrote a long explanation of why the words of a master might need editing because he talked about the fact that a master just flows on the superconscious level and just puts the vibration into it and that he said it's actually um, a gift to the disciples to be able to tune in clearly enough to his intention and then take the... Because editing, Swami describes as plumbing... He said, it's just putting the pipes together so that the energy flows properly. It's not the ideas, and it's not the inspiration. It's just making it so that it all flows properly. Wait just a second, there was another. Oh, yes. And when Swami edited the Whispers book, Swami was accustomed to going through his own writing 50 times. I mean, just over and over. Uh, The last book he wrote before he got a word computer was The Path the original version of the path, and I typed that manuscript for him. Then he got a computer and put me out of business. But I, I, typed, that, I typed those pages over and over and over and over again. I mean, I just if there was one mark on it, I'd have to type the page over again because he needed a clean page to be sure he was done. So when he did the Whispers book, I'm, he, he, he may have read over my typed version. It's possible that he 
read the typed pages. He must have read the typed pages. And then he handed it in. He said, it's done. All of us who worked with him thought, oh yeah, sure. You know, we're going to go ahead and print this. And as soon as it's printed, we're going to have to print it again. So there was a a big hoo-ha going on about, like, we're not about to send this to the printer. And so I was commissioned to speak to him. (laughs) And Swamiji said, if I keep editing it, it will change the vibration to my vibration, and this is Master's book. He said, I I edit my books to make the vibration just what I want. He said, but this is Master's book. I can't keep editing it. He said, I've done as much as, as I should do. And that's, and that's how he felt about it. And then he wrote a long thing. It's, it might be, is it the introduction to the Rubai? Is it the introduction to the Rubai? Well, he, he says it there too? Yeah. He, and also he, he wrote a long explanation about why a master's words need editing when he edited the Rubaiyat because that was the first book of masters that he was allowed to edit legally. And, uh, and so people, again, just, why would you need to? So it's a matter of opinion, you know. I mean, you can think about it. Now, about what you said. What you said about Master's humility and his reference to Babaji and his reference to Divine Mother, you see, in fact, that was how Master always was. He was very, very humble. And he, he, he referenced Babaji and he referenced Sri Yukteswar. He spoke of my Master a great deal. And he did not proclaim himself as the source of anything. You know, even when people would say, there's, Swami tells that story in the path. So Dr. Lewis was your first disciple in America. And Master said, so they say. <laughs> and then they, when he was challenged, he said, I never call people my disciples, they're God's disciples. And he referenced his own guru, he referenced Babaji, he referenced Divine Mother continuously, because that's how a great soul sees himself. No truly great soul sees himself as the source. He sees himself merely as the channel. But his disciples, in a desire to show their reverence for him, gradually try to make him bigger and bigger. That's why the disciples of Jesus took out the the, the quote lost years the 18 years when and now it's beginning to become common knowledge it's not even esoteric anymore that Jesus went to India and studied with great masters because the church people said it might d- dilute people's faith to think Jesus had to go somewhere and study and others protested this is all historical fact that well the other disciples the disciples at the time knew where he'd been do you think they never asked, you know, they knew him as a child and then he reappears and they never said, hey, where were you? You know, they knew, I, they probably didn't have to ask because they probably knew. Who knows, some of them might have gone with him for all that we know. It's all just erased because they wanted Jesus to be bigger and better. But as a result, they absolutely betray the teachings. And so the more, I mean, in Master himself, I mean, it was a line of gurus even he, he always said, it's a line of masters. You're connected to a line of masters. I'm the last in the line. Why did you do things a certain way? Because Baba, this is how Babaji wanted me to do it. So it was constantly referred with devotion as a disciple. And 
Now Swamiji felt that Master presented himself so humbly that it was Swamiji's job in writing the path and in writing the biography of Yogananda and other things to show that Master's true greatness because Master himself never asserted it. He was always extremely humble in the face of it all. Like, was it last time I was telling the story of Ramakrishna or somewhere else when, when the, the woman uh, Sadhu came and convened a collection of scholars to decide whether Ramakrishna was an avatar or not? Because this is how they do things there. She presented all the scriptural evidence that would prove that he was an avatar. Other scholars, they all discussed it. It wasn't an argument, it was a discussion. They all decided he was an avatar. And then he afterwards would say, they decided I was an avatar. <laughs> That's just how it's presented. What do you know? Isn't that interesting? <laughs> because it meant nothing to him. There was no self. It, you know, we think that humility means, oh, really, I don't say things like that about me. But Master says, how can there be humility when there's no sense of self? So it's a very important teaching. And, and Swamiji said, it's just, you know, these things, it's well-intentioned, but that's why virtue declines and, you know, vice begins to predominate and Master had to come to, to restore the original teachings of Krishna and the original teachings of Jesus. And people make up bigger stories. It becomes the legend because they're trying to find words for their actual experience. And so they want, they, they just make the story bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, the Immaculate Conception actually does not apply to, to Jesus. It actually applies to Mary. It's a, it's a theological principle that says that Mary was conceived without sin because therefore she was the pure channel. I mean, the obsession with the whole physical question of reproduction is a whole other issue. But, you know, it's just like, it's, you just don't know what to do, but you understand, and maybe it's all exactly true. When I asked Swami about it once, he said, who knows, why not? You know, it could easily be true, God can do anything. It doesn't have to be true, but it could easily be true. And Master says in, uh, in his, uh, somewhere in his Gita, com his Bible commentary, Joseph, Jesus' father, parentheses, whether by natural or divine means, close parentheses, or a phrase really close to that. <laughs> I said to Swami, what the heck does that mean, sir? Swami said, some things even Master wouldn't touch. <laughs> I mean, Master had a sense of humor about it. It was just like, let's not go there, what's the point? But when you really hear him, and, and really know what he is, he was... Very mild. I object sometimes to some of the editing of Master's words that I've seen because it's also peremptory. Meditate deeply, love God, go deep, serve. And if you're not a wordsmith, you don't even notice it, but you realize that you're just reading a series of commands. It's not always like that, but often it's edited down to declarative sentences which is partly because it, it was, notes were taken. It wasn't, rec it wasn't always recording. If you're taking notes, you just write the essence. And if you look at Swami's editing of Master, especially at the essence of self-realization, it's, it's not declarative. I mean, Master declares sometimes, but there's a lot of, um, a lot of comfort 
So you don't just feel like you have a certain, you don't just feel like you have marching orders. You feel like you have a friend. And, and all of that, it becomes very, very important, which is why many things have happened, because all those things are very important. You see how easily it all just shifts. It just shifts in a heartbeat. Listening to myself quoted, it's like, yeah, some of those words were my words, sometimes, but the entire intention of what I meant. I remember once it was, uh, something was just going to happen and Asha wants it in the so-and-so place. No, Asha doesn't want it in the so-and-so place. We were just talking about where to have it and it seemed like a good idea, doesn't it? I mean, that's real different than Asha wants it in the so-and-so place. And it's just watching what happens to me when I'm just still sitting here. You can see how quickly all of this turns into something else. So it, it's extremely important to, to hold a common sense understanding of, of what a great soul must be like. Because if they're not loving, if they're not, if they're not funny, if they're not fun, if they're not compassionate and lighthearted and supportive, then who would follow them? You know, people, I mean, a few people do, but you, you don't create a world movement by giving everybody their marching orders. And you don't create a world movement by announcing that I have come, I'm here, <laughs> you know, now it can all begin. You know, nobody wants that. We were so amused in the 1970s, I guess it would have been in the 70s, when all, the, all these enlightened be- masters were just showing up all over the place, especially in California. And Yoga Journal was the only way that we could communicate in those days because there was no internet and, there was, and the mainstream press never reported anything. So Yoga Journal was the big thing. And one of these people took out a full-page ad with his spiritual resume which included his past lives. <laughs> which was, I think he was Lord Rama and several others, you know, like, I mean, we, uh, we were amused. Swami was amused. I mean, it's like, give me a break. It's, 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 and whoever he was, he just, he rose and fell. You know, you don't, you don't have to, you don't have to do anything about it. Because if it's true, it lasts. And if it's not true, it doesn't last. But what's true is, I just want to please Babaji and Divine Mother. And then he can also, just like Jesus, you know, would turn and say, I and my Father are one. If you've, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I mean, because those things are also true, but it comes in the context of showing what real humility looks like. Yeah, very good. There's a, I'm just going to say one more thing. I didn't take a break, so we'll just stop a little early. Um, when Swamiji got recording, SRF has a huge archive of recordings, but for a long time they didn't release any of them. And in 1978, Swamiji was given a couple of voice recordings of Master. And when he came back from Europe, he got them in Europe, he came back and we immediately published them. And SRF had only published a few recordings of Master's voice, and they were all um, exhortations you know, this big voice exhorting us to do this and to do that. And this was just mastered just very sweetly, just chatting and making jokes. I think it was the birthday one. 
where they, you know, he blew out the candle and do you have enough breath to blow out the candle? And he said, I just have to be careful not to blow the whole cake away. <laughs> I mean, it was just very, it was very natural and then very sweet when he talked. And Swami said, Master sometimes exhorted people to, you know, achieve greatness. He said, but mostly he was so sweet. He said, hearing this recording, he said, that's what it was like to be with him. He was fatherly. He was a friend. He wasn't always challenging us to do more than we felt we could do. And he was, and that's why Swami put, now they've put out many more recordings, but it was to hear a master talk like that. We'd never heard him talk like that. We just thought he was always shouting at us to be better. You know, which there's a place for that, but I myself can't take too much of it. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't respond well to that. I just get sort of mouse-like, deer in the headlights kind of thing. <laughs> I do better to be patted on the head and told that I have a chance, even for you. <laughs> Well, any other comments or thoughts before we call it a night? So, we did 364 and 365. We just did two. Thank you. This is, we just finished class 99.